Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the WFIU-WTIU Newsroom. My co-host today is Sarah Wetmeyer, WFIU's News Bureau Chief. Today we're talking about the 2020 presidential election, which was Tuesday, and all of the follow-up information that's been coming in and that might come in in the weeks to come. We have uh, three guests with us today. Leslie Linkowski is with the O'Neill School of Public Health and Environmental Affairs. He's a professor of Emer Emeritus of Public Affairs and Philanthropy. Marjorie Hershey is with us. She's Professor Emeritus of the Indiana University Department of Political Science. And also with us is Nicholas Almanderas, who's a Maurer School of Law Associate Professor of Law. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition if you have questions or comments there. You can also send us questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, Margie Hershey, you were with us just a couple weeks ago. We previewed what might happen. A lot of what we talked about did happen. A lot of things didn't happen. Can you give us a, a breakdown now of, of where we are as we're, as uh, you know, we're three days after the election, after election day? What's happening right now? What's the latest? <laughs> sure. Um, thanks, Bob. Surprisingly, in spite of a total campaign spending of $14 billion, would you believe, by parties and candidates and outside groups, and months of media coverage, not much changed, setting aside the presidential race for a minute. There was a big increase in voter turnout, about 67%, which is still pretty low for most democracies. But the United States Senate is still dominated by Republicans, who probably will have just one fewer seat in January than they do now, with a majority of 52 to 48. Almost all of the incumbents who were up for re-election survived. The U.S. House is still dominated by the Democrats, though they lost somewhere between about six and 15 seats. So the Democrats will have a smaller majority, but still a majority. State legislatures, normally we would see several state legislative houses change party control in a presidential year. And there was certainly an expected blue wave. And the Democrats needed a blue wave because legislators this coming year, the state legislatures, will be the ones to redraw the state legislative and congressional district line after the U.S. Census. In most states, it's the majority party in the state legislature that draws those lines to help its own party win more seats. In 2010, there was a big Republican wave that led to a lot of Republican gerrymanders that gave the Republicans a big advantage in terms of those uh, legislative races for the next decade. This year, only two or three of the state legislative houses changed party control with a slight advantage to the Republicans. So we will see continued Republican advantage in state legislative races and probably in Congress for the next decade. So now we have the presidency. Um, it's still Vice President Biden's race to lose. He currently is reasonably sure of 253 of the 270 electoral votes that he needs. Mr. Trump has 214, probably 229 with North Carolina. But just as we expected, a lot of states have not finished counting their ballots because there was a big increase in voting by mail due to the pandemic. And there are so many safeguards built into sending out mailed ballots and receiving them 
if you were to talk to Karen Wheeler in our local election office, I think she'd tell you that there are something like 17 or 18 steps that poll workers have to go through in sending out a mail ballot or in receiving them and counting them, that the counting takes more time. So there are still four states to be decided, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada. Biden needs just two of the four states in order to win. Trump needs either three or four, depending on whether Pennsylvania is one of those that goes to Trump. So the ballot counting probably will take until the end of the weekend, and then we will be treated to a whole raft of lawsuits by the Trump campaign to try to exclude uh, certain batches of votes. Marjorie, I'm curious, just really quick, why aren't you including Arizona and the states that have been called for Biden? Because I know the Associated Press called it, and so on our air, we have said that Arizona has gone to Biden. Good question, Sarah. And the Associated Press has long been the gold standard with respect to calling these races. In fact, the AP still has not called Florida for the 2000 presidential race because it didn't feel that it had sufficient evidence. But uh, statistically, there are still enough ballots out um, so that it's conceivable, although very, very unlikely at this point, that President Trump could catch up. All right. And I know um, some some ballot ballots were counted, uh, I think, released at 11 o'clock from Arizona. And I think the race there had tightened just by two or three thousand. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe we'll get some new results from Nevada while we're on the air here, because I know they were supposed to release some results at noon Eastern time. So I want to bring Les Linkowski in. So Les, you've been um, an observer of these presidential elections for quite some time. You worked uh, for two different presidents. Is that correct? Two? That's right. Mm -hmm. George, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Well, and Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan. Okay. So, so, uh, so you've, you've been an, an observer for a while. So what are your, some of your takeaways to what you've seen in this election? Well, well I agree completely with everything uh, Margie's just said. Uh, it seems to me this is very much a centrist election. The pendulum moved a little at the presidential race. Um, the Democrats did not do as well in the other races as they wanted to. What I'm paying attention to are some of the um, detail, more detailed uh, data we're going to get as exit polls and other surveys start to come out. It turns out, no big surprise here, that people who decided who they wanted to vote for toward the end of the race tended to favor President Trump. Those who decided earlier tended to favor Vice President Biden. Uh, Vice President Biden uh, was uh, got high marks as a leader and a uniter and somebody who would address the coronavirus. President Trump got high marks for being strong, uh, concerned about the economy and so on. Two of the most interesting data uh, that we're seeing, and these are coming, the ones I'm using are coming from an organization called Edison Research. It turns out that uh, President Trump did better than I think many people would have expected among minority groups. Uh, according to the exit polls, 57% uh, of whites voted for him, uh, but among Hispanics and Latinos, it was 32%, Asians 31%, other groups 40%. Even among African Americans, he won 12% of the vote, according to the exit, the exit survey, uh, which is somewhat higher, I think, than many people would have expected. Another one that might be particularly interesting uh, here in Bloomington is that President Trump won about one-third of all young people, 18 uh, to 29 years of age, who constituted uh, 17 percent of the voters. Uh, among the other age groups, there wasn't a lot of difference, ranging from 45 percent to 51 percent. Um, 
President Trump also won um, 42 percent of college graduates, although he did better, 49 percent people with no college degrees. So I think these are the kinds of data we'll want to be looking at in the months ahead to get a better picture of uh, the character of the American electorate today and what uh, the, it is looking for in the next uh, president as well as Congress. Made some fascinating data that are fascinating um, results that'll come out of all that data. Um, so Nicholas Almanderas, you are a professor of law, uh, associate professor of law at Maurer School, and uh, you have some expertise in election law. This is going to be a very litigious election, it seems to me. There have already been several attempts to, uh, several lawsuits that have been filed. So, you know, what are, what are some of the key things we should be looking for when it comes to these legal challenges that are going to be forthcoming? Yeah. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's certainly going to be very litigious and it's, there's always this challenge from a, from a law perspective of generalizing over a bunch of different lawsuits, especially because they're going to be couched in state law. So we have lots of different, subtly different uh, legal systems. Um, I I think, and this is probably good general advice for anything related to the election, is to um, be calm and deliberate. Um, co courts, courts, one, I guess one big takeaway for me is courts are not very good at handling elections. So we should not look for the courts for much. Um, there's a whole lot of reasons around elections, especially considering kind of the time frame they work on, that courts are just not very good at kind of rescuing or navigating elections. This is not, this is not a place they're particularly strong. And I think the federal judiciary right now is in a particularly weak place for a lot of reasons. So, so I guess that's one big takeaway. And then the other big takeaway is that they take a while to grind through. Um, and it's very easy or relatively easy, unless a court really wants to stop you to make outrageous claims at the very beginning of a court case. And that seems to be what's happened. Uh, a lot of courts, um, I think attorneys general or, or state courts have said that some of the claims that were made yesterday already were frivolous and, and have already been thrown out. One specific thing I wanted to ask you about in for um, this for our edification is, you know, President Trump has talked about how he's, he's going to make sure this case gets to the Supreme Court. And um, there, I think one of his, um, one of his generals talked yesterday about actually how he, President Trump has appointed three of these Supreme Court justices, so it's going to get to the court, and then we'll see how this goes. How does a how would this election wind up in the hands of the Supreme Court? Oh, um, I mean, so so the way things get to the Supreme Court is they they either work their way up through a state court and they get to the state Supreme Court, so like the Indiana Supreme Court, and then they get appealed from there, or the work more likely is they work their way through the federal system. So you start at what we call the district court, and it's just a trial like any other. So, and you would find some reason to challenge some ballots, right? And you would have to hope that, you know, if you're on the, the if you're on the Trump's legal team, you'd have to hope that you can challenge enough ballots to make a difference. So, I mean, I think whenever we're having this conversation, all of our minds are going back to Florida in the year 2000. Um, and full disclosure, I am a born and raised Floridian. Um, uh, and, and and that that election was very close, so small changes could make a difference, right? So you'd have to hope that, and then that would go to a you know a, a decision at the lower court, and they would appeal it to the court of appeals, and this would all happen very quickly in this context. And then that then it would go to the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's how it would get there. Just I guess the way any other, uh, oddly enough, the way any other case gets there. I think things get uh, sort of um, a little fuzzy sometimes because you know the president will say something like we're gonna. We're just going to get this case to the Supreme Court, and then you know there's been so much attention placed on the court in mm -hmm. you know in recent weeks and months and and years even that I think people are confused about. So I appreciate that clarification, Sarah. This question um, someone sent in, and maybe less you can take a pass at it first, but the question is about Terre Haute because, as you know very well, they uh, have correctly predicted the winner of the presidential election 
since at least the 1950s correctly. So the question is, um, Terre Haute has now officially gone to Trump. So how seriously would should we take that when we're looking at who could become the next president? Well, I think uh, <laughs> Terre Haute reflects the voting composition of uh, Indiana. There's a big debate, and I think Marge could probably comment on this, is whether they're what we call bellwether counties really are. Uh, it used to be the case that winning Ohio was a good thing to do if you wanted to become president. That does not appear to be the case anymore. So I, I would make too much of it. I think what we saw in Indiana was the state voted pretty much the way it had done uh, four years ago. And I think what the vote in uh, Vigo County reflected that. Margie? <laughs> I think the general rule is that bellwethers are bellwethers until they aren't bellwethers anymore. And that's perfectly understandable. You know, there's the old story about uh, when Maine used to be a bellwether state, as Maine goes, so goes the nation. And then Maine no longer became a bellwether. And the phrase was, as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. Um, it, the, the problem is we should expect that bellwethers will not be bellwethers for a very long period of time, except by random chance, because of the fact that they can predict the national vote only to the extent that they reflect uh, the composition of the nation as it's involved in the campaign at the time, and the nation changes over time and some areas change with it and some areas don't. So um, I think we probably ought to let go of a whole series of these kinds of rules about uh, Terre Haute is somehow gonna predict the election result and therefore it should and therefore President Trump in fact is gonna win. It's a good try, um, no cigar. It, it just, it's just not sensible. Well, I have to say, Margie, it's always been a great story for the rest of us. You know, all, all we Hoosier journalists would like <laughs> to do the Terre Haute story. And in fact, WFMU's Brock Turner did that story this year. And both Max Jones, the uh, longtime editor of the Tribune Star and a professor, political science professor at Indiana State, predicted that Trump was going to carry um, Vigo County, but that they both thought that this bellwether idea was going to end this year because it looked like Biden was going to win the election. Of course, we don't have the results in, but it is looking more and more like um, that all might come to an end. So that's, that's why, if I could just add one thing, that's why I think you have to really look below the level of the county or maybe even the city. So uh, day before the election, I received a call from the New York Times asking me what they ought to be looking at in Indiana. And I said, pay attention to the early returns from the fifth district congressional race, because that might tell us something about how the suburbs were doing. And then I heard that coming back from Bob Zaltzberg on election night, who had read it. Well, what did happen? Well, it turned out there was not much change at all in the, uh, at least in the uh, suburban parts of the fifth district. And that I think explains not only why Christie, uh, why Sparts, Victoria Sparts won, but also how Trump did. All right, our our phone, our, we don't, we aren't on the phone today, so you can't give us a call, but uh, you can send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Moon Edition. So, Margie, when we talked a couple of weeks ago. Um, you talked about, and a lot of other people have talked about the idea that um, the early votes were going to be looking red, more red, and that when the mail-in ballots started coming in and being counted, that they were gonna be turning the election to more in Joe Biden's favor. And that that did does seem to have borne out. So what do you make of this, this idea? I mean, President Trump yesterday was talking about how well we we had this big lead and then miraculously our lead disappeared in the middle of the night. So can you explain why that wasn't miraculous? Oh goodness, it wasn't miraculous at all. Um, let me just say, and this may sound partisan, I don't at all mean it to be, but as I was listening to the president speak over the last couple of days, 
the term con man kept coming into my brain. And so I looked it up in the dictionary and found that a con man is defined as somebody who puts forward schemes or uses unscrupulous trickery to defraud other people. And I started to think, you know, obviously um, cons, they're pretty common in American society. We get them on the phone just about every day. But why is it that the president has been so successful at it? Um, and my suspicion is that it's kind of like what happened in the Great Recession when some banks were regarded as being too big to fail. If the con you present is big enough, you involve a whole lot of people in it, and then they need to rationalize their support of it in order to be not too embarrassed. So you get some rather incredible occurrences, such as people completely denying what has been predicted for weeks or uh, the current QAnon con, which I've been very fond of, that our elected leaders are actually lizard people wearing human skin who kidnap children um, for purposes of, of sexual abuse and apparently drinking their blood. I don't keep up very well with QAnon, but that seems to be where it is now. Um, President Trump is throwing mud at the barn wall um, in order to see what sticks. And so he's made a whole series of claims that include that somehow this was a miraculous change. And um, I saw one post on Twitter last night that said this is kind of like my um, counting my fingers one night and I get as far as three and then I get sleepy and fall asleep. And then the next morning I wake up and count them again and I get five. Um, and so it would appear that there has been some major change that's occurred. We've had President Trump saying since the beginning that voting by mail is fraudulent and that therefore people should not do that, something that had Republican leaders all over the country tearing their hair out because so many of their supporters would have certainly preferred to vote by mail because of the pandemic. And uh, as a result, we saw that many more Democrats were voting by mail than Republicans because Republicans were taking the president at his word. Well, that sort of means that when you end up looking at by mail ballots, <clears throat> there are going to be a whole lot of Democrats in them, whereas a lot of people going to the polls on election day <clears throat> were going to be Republicans. So, uh, you know, this is, this is not rocket science. Um, when you have one group that is predominantly voting by mail and another group that's voting predominantly at the polls, you're sort of going to get different results depending on when you count those votes. This is just perfectly predictable. It was, in fact, predicted, and it happened. The prediction proved to be true. Uh, Les Linkowski, I, I wanted to ask you about um, about you know those issues, and also just you know if you if you had the opportunity to watch the president on television last night before he was um, the before all the networks cut away from him, and give me your reaction as a person who has had uh, has been appointed to positions by President Reagan, President George W. Bush, and um, Bill Clinton. Um, just I just want to get a reaction to what we saw out of the president last night? Well, it was was an appalling performance, I thought, but it wasn't surprising. He's done that before. And here, I think, well, I generally agree with Margie. I think one ought not to um, exaggerate President Trump's political skills. Margie already mentioned the fact that President Trump, a majority of people 65 or over voted for President Trump, according to the exit polls. But of course, many more might have done so if they hadn't been discouraged from voting by mail. There are others as well. I think we are living in a time where there's a great deal of misinformation out there. We've been talking about this for quite a while. Uh, just before the press conference last night, um, an old friend of mine who used to serve as Secretary of Education of the United States and has a PhD in philosophy after beginning his commentary on Fox News by saying as a philosopher he was dedicated 
to truth repeated uh, a rumor about some large number of votes for Biden having strangely appeared in the Pennsylvania count. There wasn't much at all. There was nothing at all strange about it. It just reflected the way in which the company that reported the votes was transmitting them to the media. But here you get misinformation. People will believe it. Um, and that, I think, um, makes the election seem a good deal less legitimate in the eyes of some, maybe many, than it actually was. I think, you know, given everything we've been going through this year, um, the fact that 160 to 170 million Americans cast their vote, votes that this uh, in this election for the most part peacefully is something we ought to be proud of. Yeah, we've gotten several questions just about um, the future of some issues once we do have a new president. So Marjorie, maybe we can start with you. Um, one is, can we expect the country to have some sort of COVID lockdown after we have a new president? And then will we be looking at another stimulus package under either Trump or Biden? And I can't remember the other one, but when I find it, I'll ask that one. If you want to go ahead and address those two. <laughs> sure, I'd be glad to. Um, yes, of course, we certainly will be having another stimulus package. Um, goodness knows the, the economy. Um, regardless of what the president has said, is is recovering very slowly and it's really been up and down. And I think many in Congress would have preferred to pass a new stimulus package, but they were all worried about who was going to be able to take credit for it if they did before the election. I think there's widespread agreement in Washington that a stimulus package is necessary. Um, with respect to lockdowns and COVID-19, I trust what the candidates have had to say that Vice President Biden has been pretty clear that he said he's going to listen to the scientists and he's mentioned Dr. Fauci in particular, who has um, suggested basically what we need to do is to have a pretty nimble response, which we have not had much at all to this point. So I think really what uh, determines whether or not we're going to have a nationwide lockdown. I would sort of doubt it because my sense is that um, it's kind of like what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said about the Voting Rights Act that um, when the court struck it down or struck down part We seem to have lost Margie. Right. She's okay, Margie. Sorry, Margie, your connection is a little rough for us. Sarah, do you have another one? Yeah, the other one was just about the Paris Agreement, which I think we can predict that we would probably stay the course if um, Trump wins, but Les, can you, do you have any Well, I'm glad you asked that because perhaps with the Paris Agreement, it's a bit of an exception, but for the most part, foreign and uh, national security policy didn't figure very much in this election. Um, I think it's going to prove difficult for a variety of reasons for Vice President Biden to change some of these agreements. I just had a, a, a note from a friend in Poland about the election, uh, and I suggested that um, clearly a president-elect Biden will not want to seem that he is weak toward uh, Russia. And as a result, I wouldn't expect a lot of change in some of the things such as moving American troops from Germany to Poland that we've seen in this administration. I don't know enough about what would be entailed in getting back into the Paris Accord, but these are fairly complicated uh, and it would take some time probably for a Biden administration to negotiate the terms of that if it were so inclined to do so. 
Professor Almendares, um, from a legal perspective, have you seen anything in this election this year that seems to be, you know, un, unusually um, corrupt or anything that that you you believe or you have seen that might lead you to believe that it's not a free and fair election? Uh, no, not that I've seen any. There's been, I mean, I think this is the prevailing report. No evidence. In fact, given given the pandemic, right, it's, and, and everything else, it's shocking how smoothly it's, it's been running. So, I mean, system-wise, I would call this kind of a win and kind of echoing a little bit of what Marjorie was saying. I think we see kind of a, a ginned up legal controversy, right, to try and delay the counting of the votes and then say they're running up against yeah. deadlines and stuff like that. But that's all kind of artificially constructed. Right. So from a, a different perspective, a different topic on on the law, I mean, we've there's been a lot of talk about camp, campaign finance reform and uh, about the, the, the money that's spent in these elections. What's this election tell us about, you know, the, our campaign finance laws? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is, this is the world we, we live in. Right. Um, and I'm sure um, Marjorie and Leslie can speak to this as well. Um, uh, that we are, this is a, a, this is a strange election, right? Cause we were again, awash with money. And this might be a question of like, does it make that big a difference or if both sides, right. Are equally well-funded, uh, um, right. Or close to equally well-funded. Does that make a difference? Instead, you should be concerned about cases Right, races where one side is able to really outspend the other by orders of magnitude. Um, another way, and this is maybe something less we'll, we'll be able to look at, um, is I wonder if like this was a campaign during a pandemic, right? So that's that's unique. Um, whether this is just an example of the power that incumbents bring, because incumbents did very well with this campaign. Yeah, the other thing I would mention, uh, I think uh, Marge said the total's coming to about $14 billion, and that's real money, no question about it. But I'm going to guess that we probably spend at least four or five times as much on dog food every year. So we need to keep this in perspective. All right. If you have a question for us, you can send it to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, but by the go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, I, I was just thinking of the like things that will change. Um, and I think there's a lot of, if Biden wins the presidency, there's going to be a lot of kind of below the line subtle stuff. Like he's going to have control over the federal bureaucracy to a large extent, right? And so policy at the EPA is likely to change. Um, and, and that's kind of complicated what, what's happened in the Trump administration over that. But like enforcement policy at EPA and DOJ and those sort of day-by-day -day decisions that are largely directed by the executive administration, that's the sort of stuff that I think is really going to change, especially because a lot of other things, like Les was saying, are complicated or they're going to involve Congress's, um, Congress is going to have to have a hand in it. I'd also add to that, by the way, something uh, people need to be watching for. President Trump is still going to be in office for another 75 days. And we have seen when previous administrations were leaving office a rush to enact new regulations, to change people from political appointees mm -hmm. to civil service appointees, and so on. So we're going to, I think we need to keep an eye on that. And you know, where criticism is warranted, make it. Well, I have to ask because, you know, with President Trump has been um, different from any other president. I think that's fair to say. And, and there are people who are concerned that he won't even accept the whatever the if Biden does win the election in, in a very narrow way that he won't accept those uh, results. I mean, could we? What, what could happen if he decides that he's just not going to accept them and to stay put? Well, I'll defer to my colleague at the law school on this, but as I understand it, on January 20th, Inauguration Day, 
his power of the presidency ceases. Uh, so, um, you know, I think uh, there are not too many things he can do um, uh, uh, to stay in office after January 20th, probably none. Well, I might um, add too that we we don't know yet if he you know he may still win this election. So I, I do need to say that. But go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, that's basically it. I mean, that would be uh, a very unprecedented scenario. But you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make air quotes that no one can see, right? Legally, <laughs> right? It's exactly like Les said, right? And he would be trespassing, I guess. Um, and the same thing that happens to anyone else who happens to be trespassing in the White House or anywhere else on public land. But, I mean, that requires people to carry that out. And I have a certain degree of faith that that'll be done. But uh, as I was telling some students the other day, like, it's it's all people all the way down, right? It's just people choosing to observe the law and the rules and the norms that we have in place. And I'm also, although I do not know President Trump at all, I'm also pretty confident that at some point when passions are a little bit cooler, uh, he'll start thinking about his legacy. Sarah? Marjorie, are, are you back with us? Hi, I'm back, back with, with you. you. There's a there's a bit of an echo, um, but I, I wanted to ask you about the polls because that was something we talked about a couple weeks ago when you were on. And, you know, we're hearing from a lot of folks that the polls got it wrong this time. So what's your perspective? Well, um, and I, I'm afraid my line may not be very good right now. So how about if I send you a response and you can read it? You actually sound okay. great. You sound great right oh, now. Oh, all right. All right. This this has been a real um, serious challenge as far as the polls are concerned. We ran into this a time ago in 2016 when obviously the polls underestimated President Trump's support. And so the real question is, is this President Trump or is this the polls? Now, we know for a fact that uh, we're not just simply presenting a kind of a pound of raw meat of voters' responses when we present poll data. Poll responses are so minimal now that uh, when you call 100 people as a pollster, you can normally expect a response only from six or seven of them. The response rate is literally that low. So we're not seeing the actual results of uh, 100 respondents. We're seeing a model that the pollsters have developed, and each pollster has his or her own model, as to how to weight those six or seven responses so as to represent all of the different uh, racial, economic, educational, gender groups in the society. And uh, that means that we certainly found in 2016 that we were underweighting people who had um, perhaps attended college but had not graduated. The poll takers learned from that, and they re-weighted and increased the weighting on those groups in 2020. And it still didn't work. Um, it's possible that President Trump's appeal is unusual enough that um, we're simply not picking up the kinds of people in polls who believe in President Trump. I don't think that this is a question of shy Trump voters, so-called, of people not wanting to admit that they're voting for Trump. Goodness knows we haven't seen a huge amount of shyness from a lot of Trump supporters in recent years. But it may be that the kinds of people who are more inclined to support President Trump are simply not picking up on polls at all, that they are um, refusing to respond altogether to polling, perhaps because of the tremendous amount of suspicion that President Trump has succeeded in generating about the so-called mainstream media. That's another um, remarkable effort that he has made and has been very successful at. There are huge numbers of media outlets out there. And if we start to generalize about something called the mainstream media that includes, for example, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, 
and we claim that they're taking the same viewpoint and trying to brainwash Americans, it kind of flies in the face of logic. Um, so poll takers are in the midst of a real crisis right now to try to figure out what it was that went wrong if it is the case that their models were off they can adjust the models if it's the case that some types of people who are disproportionately trump supporters are not responding to polls anymore then we've got a much bigger problem and how they're going to solve that one is anybody's guess can i just add to that a minute and pick up on what marge mentioned at the end because i think this is something Bob, you've been thinking about as well, which is the media. Uh, it's not just the polling industry that'll have to do a little stock taking. I think it's uh, the media will have to examine how well it's been covering this administration, to what degree accusations of bias have any merit and what to do about them. And of course, if you expand this into the social media, um, we really need to be thinking a lot about the the sources of information um, that uh, Americans are getting. It's very important in democracy to have such sources, good sources, not only at the national level, but at the state level and the local level. Um, and uh, uh, do we have them? What do we need to do uh, to shore them up? Well, Along those lines, I just wonder about just institutions in general. And, you know, Margie mentioned it, but, you know, I think about pretty much any any institution that has been considered, well, the media is one that just, you know, the freedom freedom of the press, I think the, you know, the court system, if, they, if the courts don't agree or judges don't agree with um, particular, what one particular side or another, there's a, a big, uh, controversy about that. I mean, how how are our institutions going to be viewed coming out of this election? And I know that's a big broad question. What about the what about the law, Nicholas? Uh, as I alluded to earlier, I think uh, the courts are in a pretty weak position right now, in large part because just springboarding off of your question, what they have is their legitimacy. Like that's that's it. That's all that courts have, really. And they develop that legitimacy by, I think, um, uh, seeming you know apolitical to some extent, and I think by explaining themselves. Right. That's a big reason why they write these often incredibly long opinions that you know I end up spending a lot of my time parsing and teaching about. Um, so, so to the extent they can explain themselves to the American people, that shores up their legitimacy. I think, you know, at the, the court that everyone pays attention to is largely the Supreme Court, although to some extent this is true of lower courts as well, have had bruising nomination fights, right? Um, so the legitimacy is, I, I, I don't know if I would say an all-time low, but very low right now. Um, and I don't know, I think they, they, I don't know how they get out of that. Maybe uh, that would take years of kind of doing the work I just described, which is, seeming fair and balanced and reasonable even if they come to a decision you disagree with you you see the logic you say okay well, that's that makes sense um that was going to is going to take a long time and maybe a silver lining there is we will the rest of the branches of the government or the rest of us who have more direct effects on the rest of the branches of the government will take more responsibility for sorting out a lot of questions that the courts have in recent memory really dominated I, I, think I think that's a really important point, and I think that um, understanding the concept of legitimacy is crucial. Um, the courts don't have any troops to enforce their rulings. Um, there's a reason why judges wear robes and sit on high benches. It's to increase the legitimacy of their rulings, given that there's very little else that they have to enforce them. That's true of virtually all the other institutions of a democracy as mm -hmm. well. And certainly it's possible to go at this by looking to the institutions themselves and saying, hey, you guys, you got to explain yourself better and you've got to be able to help people understand better. There's another approach, and that's looking at those of us who are looking at the institutions and saying, you know, we're venturing into very dangerous territory here. 
by um, starting to throw around a lot of wild accusations about um, bias and and um, intentional efforts to undermine democracy and and lizard people wearing human skins and stuff like that we need to we need to start looking at ourselves to a much greater extent and saying democracy is not guaranteed in the United States we have managed to keep it alive for 230 some years we really need to think about whether or not the entertainment value of um, people being able to scream at one another using wild charges is worth the possible loss of something that so many people have given their lives to protect. There was a uh, referendum in California this week that I think has a lot of implications for higher education. Uh, there was an effort to overturn a ban on affirmative action that had been in place affecting colleges and universities, state colleges and universities in California, I think for probably 25 years or so. And the effort to reverse, to, to, uh, reverse that ban failed. Um, now, affirmative action is one of many things, maybe not the most significant of them, of criticisms that have been leveled against higher education uh, in recent years, some of which are going up through the court system, others are in regulation form. So I think higher education as well should pay attention to its uh, reputation uh, not only on these issues, of course, but in the wake of the changes that have had to be made as a, due to the pandemic. We've gotten a couple questions in. Uh, Marjorie, maybe you can take this one first. But the question is, how much does our government actually represent a majority rule? People feel like their vote doesn't have much power. Well, uh, when we talk about the presidential election, obviously there's a point there because of the fact that the Electoral College is the mechanism that actually selects the president rather than the popular vote. Um, this is an issue that we've dealt with throughout our lives as a country because of the fact that the Constitution really is not a majoritarian document, and it wasn't intended to be. The folks who wrote the Constitution were understandably pretty uh, worried and anxious about what majority rule would in fact result in and whether it would result in a lot of the rabble like you and me coming and taking over and dispossessing the wealthy of their wealth and, and uh, distributing it among the common people. So we see element after element of the American Constitution that's designed to slow down or frustrate majority rule. The Senate is a prime example, the fact that the states, whether they have a population of 800,000 or uh, 40 million, all have the same representation in the United States Senate, and I know there are good reasons for that from the perspective of the founders. The fact that the Electoral College, um, because it includes the number of senators every state has, also uh, limits majority rule. The simple presence of separation of powers, which is, if anything, the primary um, principle of the Constitution, is intended to slow down the possibility that a transient majority could step in and dominate and take over the government for a period of time. So we're not a country that was designed to have complete majority rule. Um, many people are under the impression that we were, but if you read the Constitution, which is a really good idea, you'll find that that is not the case. Um, so we probably have um, a little bit more majority rule than the people who wrote the Constitution would have intended. The problem is it's not as much as many others of people now would like to have, but constitutional change is very difficult um, for good reason. Um, Margie, early in the show, we only, and we only have a couple minutes, but early in the show, you talked about the Senate and how it didn't look like it was going to change. But it appears there are going to be two runoff elections in, in Georgia. Can you explain what those runoff elections 
are and what is likely to happen down there? Sure. Um, this is a kind of an interesting situation in which the elections are being run under what is called the jungle primary rule, um, in which whoever gets the most votes, if they get 50% of the vote, wins. But if they don't get 50% of the vote, which when you've got um, something like 15 candidates running, which is the case in one of these races, then there has to be a runoff afterwards so that the leading candidate does get 50%. The runoff primary was instituted um, during the Democratic Solid South when uh, various kinds of mechanisms were used in order to keep white control of the Democratic Party, because usually if there were several white candidates, they would split the vote in the first election. But then after that, once there was a runoff, the African-American candidate would tend to get defeated because there weren't as many of them and they didn't have as much support. So the chances are pretty good that the Republican will win in both of those races. Um, the in, in neither case, at least at the last time I heard with respect to the Purdue race in Georgia, did the leading candidate get 50% of the vote. So the runoff will be scheduled in early January um, in both of those cases, and that will determine the two senators from Georgia. Okay, and we are about out of time. I do want to mention that, of course, votes are still coming in from the four key states that uh, we talked about earlier in the show. There were some new numbers in Nevada uh, that were released around noon, and Joe Biden, Vice President Biden's lead in Nevada is now down to about 20,000 votes. Uh, there are still quite a few votes outstanding there, but it has shrunk in the last 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours. So I want to thank our guests today. We had Leslie Lankowski, Marjorie Hershey, and Nicholas Almendaris on the program with us. Thank you all for your observations about this election. For co-host Sarah Whitmire, producer Benta Boutier, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.